Welcome to Can You Hold My Attention? Kingswood U.S. CEO and industry veteran Derek Bruton invites his guests to discuss and debate the latest trends and hottest topics facing financial advisors today. The guest list represents a who's who of the financial services industry. Derek's goal is to provide you with insight into how he and other leaders think about today's challenges and plan for future success. And now, let's see whether or not today's guest can hold Derek's attention. Friends and colleagues, welcome to my inaugural podcast, Can You Hold My Attention? My goal with this podcast is quite simply to attack the topics which I understand from hearing directly from all of you in the industry are the most important to you. I will address these topics at pace with my guests, challenge them where they've never been challenged, hopefully, and leave you all to determine whether you've gleaned something that will benefit you professionally or personally. Oh, and we're going to have a lot of fun at this too. So just give me 20 minutes of your day and I commit to a strong ROI on your time investment. So let's dive right in. My inaugural guest is none other than Brooke Southall, who's the founder of RIA Biz, one of the leading online publications in the financial services industry. I think it's safe to say that if, it, if anything happens in this business, Brooke knows about it. But that's not why I've invited him to join us today. Brooke, I know you care about this business, but you also have many opinions. You're very outspoken about what you witness daily in financial services. And from your vantage point, I can't think of anyone in this industry that knows the topics, the people, and the trends like you do. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Have fun as my inaugural guest, no pressure. So with that, uh, let's dive right in. Welcome, Brooke. Thank you very much, Derek. Uh, I'm honored to be your first guest. All right. And we've known each other for years, Brooke. I know that uh, many years ago, you invited me out to the Bay Area to uh, kayak with you. I think I invited you to a little one-on-one basketball. Uh, neither of those have materialized yet, but there's much a much higher chance I'll be kayaking with you than you playing basketball with me. <laughs> Thanks to my knees. Oh, I see. Well, my knees aren't too good either. <laughs> All right, so let's start at 30,000 feet. There's some really key trends in this industry right now, and I've kind of identified three of them, and I wanna get your opinion on them. One is, is the massive consolidation that we see almost every day, almost every hour now in this industry. People buying other firms, people selling to firms, uh, roll-ups, what have you. So consolidation's a big trend. This move to independence, which is hardly a new trend, it's been going on for over a decade now, but it, but it intensifies as we see the industry wake up to the possibilities of what it means to be independent and the valuations of those businesses. And the last trend I want to talk about is fee compression across the board, whether you're an advisor, whether you're a custodian, a technology firm, what have you. So what I'd like to know and what to hear from you, Brooke, is who's benefiting the most from these trends? Can, uh, is it the investor? Is it the advisor? Or is it the institutions that serve them? Well, I, th I think um, that if you look at uh, the laws of supply and demand, the advisor uh, comes out way ahead of the in investor and, and the institutions. There's just simply not that many advisors. And they still are the only source of uh, general intelligence in the industry, which is far and away uh, the most valuable commodity. 
Um, and they've got every other tailwind, it seems. Uh, obviously, the uh, market capitalization of uh, securities the, is, uh, has never been higher. Uh, the demand for advice, uh, demographic trends, et cetera, are all in the favor of advisors. Uh, every time uh, some new technology or other shift in the industry occurs with more competitors, it all seems to accrue to the benefit of the advisor. That's my short answer on advisors, but the, it's not as if the uh, investor and the institution are necessarily you know, suffering in a zero-sum situation. I think the investor is better off maybe than they've ever been. They, you know, the two things you want out of a free enterprise system are uh, good prices, value, et cetera, but you also want variety, right? And right. the variety has never been, uh, never been more spectacular. Um, ranging from the most basic robo service all the way up to the ultra high net worth advisor using alternative investments and uh, high levels of uh, trust and care, et cetera. So, right. so I think the, 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 the investor is, is doing well. There are more investors being drawn into the market. So just sheerly bringing people from Passbook savings into the investing realm is uh, is in fact happening, and I also think that uh, institutions are doing well. Nobody's maybe going out of business, though we are seeing maybe of some uh, attrition in in mutual funds and so on. And we're seeing there are a lot of institutions uh, that that all seem to to have a seat at the table. Yeah, I think that, in my opinion, the investors winning in this game. And, and, you know, Charles Schwab came out when they eliminated transaction fees. Chuck Schwab said himself that he wants to make investing affordable to every American. And at an average of 15 trades a year, uh, which I think is what uh, a, a account holder trades at Schwab, uh, multiplied by $5 a trade, that's 75 bucks a year. I mean, isn't that affordable already? Well, I don't know if it was ever all that unaffordable right but i mean there's no question the investor is is doing well in all this uh i just think the advisor is in this uber good position um to have uh you know the opportunity for for a great career in a growing business and really not having to be too worried about being disrupted so to speak yeah um so anyway it's you could argue either way Yes, yeah, certainly compared to other industries, I feel I, I agree with you. I think the fee pressure has not been as dramatic as people report on with at the advisor level. Wearing custodian and institutional hats in the, in, in the past, between interest rates uh, being in the gutter, uh, transaction fees being eliminated, pressures across the board uh, from revenue share with fund companies. I think institutions are definitely bearing the brunt but they also have the scale to be innovative. A lot of them do. And uh, we're, we certainly see that out there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm going to jump to uh, the next question. And, you know, I think, again, as I mentioned in the intro, you have some great perspective on this. Name one story or moment that you've reported on at RA Biz that just, from your perspective, rocked this industry and maybe even still today has a lingering impact on the industry. Well, I have to say that's, that, that is kind of a hard question, and I 
would say that the reason it's a hard question is because the uh, the industry is so decentralized that um, it's not super vulnerable to any bombs going off, which is what people like to read about. That said, uh, we do have some centers of influence in this industry, namely the namely the larger custodians, and the degree to which I find we challenge them is where is where we get the big hits and you end up seeing that article read for years and years and years. Anything to do with the Schwab uh, merger with TD Ameritrade uh, were some of the bigger stories that we've written in a long time. And I just think so much happened all in that one transaction that uh, not only changed their destinies, but changed everybody affiliated with them um, and anybody who competes with them. And, um, you know, we, we finally went to what you might call a zero friction industry, which is what Silicon Valley has been enjoying for 30 years. So, so I, I would have to say that, right? And we could get into more specific stories uh, down the road, but I would, I, would, I would leave it there for now. So drill down a little bit for me on zero friction. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that... Uh, that trading fees, despite the fact that very few firms, well, very few firms that we talk about every day rely that much on trading income, I think nonetheless, they were a big friction. They were the thing that kept ETFs maybe from being uh, realizing their fuller destiny. It's something that kept direct indexing from uh, even being in the conversation as maybe a next best thing. You know, a, a major a major boost for everybody, and brought you know brought all things digital to to a higher level. So uh, I I think that that there's a law of unintended consequences uh, that we will see in this industry. I think that was a, a lift, uh, you know, for the industry. I think it was even a lift for the companies that went to zero. Um, it was kind of them capitulating to the fact that they will have to innovate. And I think that's liberating uh, for a Schwab or a Fidelity. Yeah, liberating for Schwab and Fidelity uh, makes for tough board discussions and tough uh, senior management meetings for other firms, right? That um, maybe don't have that innovative bone, uh, more of an adaption bone in their bodies mm -hmm. and, uh, and certainly makes it, makes it tougher. Okay, so no, no one story, but... Uh, but, you know, TD and Schwab is certainly one that's at the forefront of, of people's minds right now. And I'm going to come back to that. But I want to I want to dig in a little bit more um, in, you know, just in, in viewing what's going on right now with the pandemic. And what has this produced in terms of good things that have changed in the industry? I mean, there's a lot of negative and a lot of tough, uh, difficult situations people have dealt with this, this pandemic. But what, what good has come out of it? Good question, right? It's it's been like it has for the rest of the world. It's been a uh, a giant uh, retreat. Um, it's been a giant period of uh, introspection, and it's been uh, an opportunity to realize that we can question almost everything about how we do business, and um, I. There's surely things we miss. I just don't think anybody wanted to be first to say, hey, we're not gonna have clients come in. I saw a speech from Mike 
Kitches last year in San Francisco, where he said, uh, before any of this happened, uh, he said, as, as they cut back on their higher end clients coming into the office so much, their higher end clients responded by thanking them profusely <laughs> for not making them come to the office, right? Right. So, uh, so yeah, and I, and I also frankly think a lot of people have been grateful not to have to go to conferences and not have to do business travel. And I know I have one friend who was about to quit her job in this industry because she had to travel a lot. And now that's extended her career because, uh, perfectly happy as long as she didn't have to travel. So, so I, th I think it's just been, it's been a healthy, healthy thing for the industry. We all kind of miss each other, but, uh, I'll, I'll, I would say, I would say it's a good thing. So, yeah. And I've, I've heard from people saying that, uh, it's easy to maintain rapport and maintain trust with clients during these times over zoom, over conference calls. Right. Uh, but what they found challenging is developing trust and developing rapport with new clients. And so same store sales or organic growth is I've seen slow down in this industry. Some people will admit that some people won't. Okay. Uh, but I've kind of seen that slow down. Have, have you have you kind of heard the same? Honestly, I don't have a sense that I have a feel for that. And maybe, yeah, I mean, there maybe there's some statistics that will bear that out. It might be too soon. Um, there's so many other factors at any given time, right? But God knows we've seen there's just I, I've heard that there's the same effect we're seeing at things like Robin Hood or Schwab, et cetera, they're all kind of having an amazing year has in fact happened to some, some extent on the RA side. And uh, so, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what happens when the dust settles, so to speak. Um, I, I, have, I have a hard time getting a, a grip on, on how people are bringing in assets. Well, let's, let's circle back to something uh, more specific to RA biz and, and uh, you know things that you live with daily, and that's you know getting people attracted to click on RA Biz to click on the articles to read through them. What what are the key components that must be present in, a, in an article for you to generate those clicks? It really, uh, I think, if I were to give you a short, simple answer, it would be, you know, we have an abiding belief that people want to read a good old fashioned article that has the aspects that were defined. The, the journalistic industry has been around for 450 years. And then suddenly when things went online, everybody questioned everything about it overnight. Right. And I think that was mostly a mistake. Um, I think you, you talked to, when I talk to fellow publishers, they say, well, we can't write an in-depth article anymore because we have too much time pressure, we have to get it out there. And uh, I, I think that is not a good way to think about it. Uh, I think an article just has to undergo a process. It has to be, uh, um, there has to be fortune, misfortune, uh, has to be relevant to the reader. There has to be, I think you have to touch on the personalities of the people involved. Um, but, you know, ultimately you have to be, be challenging something, bring that into the headline, bring that into the lead, have 
uh, photographs that represent that, you know, have a story, but then also have the other side of that story uh, to the extent that you can get it. And it, it really is kind of a symphony for every single article. And we have just in, decided here that we want to, uh, we'd rather be late and go through that process. And a lot of that is just trusting the reader to not want the cheap thrill of seeing the late breaking news super quick and have only 250 words about it, right? Right. And I really trust the readers in this industry. It's just people in this industry are thoughtful. They're loyal. They, they want to know both sides. They seem to be fairly thick skinned, honestly. So uh, I find as long as I do my best, even if I kind of get something maybe that somebody doesn't agree with, they seem to be pretty good at dealing with that. But misfortune I, sells over sells over fortune, right? I mean, uh, yeah, because that's what a newspaper is for. A newspaper is there to tell the bad news. I mean, I hate to say it. <laughs> it's not that we don't try to catch people doing things right, but a PR agency, a conference, and everybody's all about good news, right? And everybody loves to deliver good news. So it really is up to a newspaper to deliver the bad news. And we can do it because we, well, of course we're third party, but also because we do the associated research with that bad news to put it in the right context and to balance it. Yeah. And delivering good news, you don't have that same pressure. I seem to find myself reading Brooks notes at the beginning uh, maybe because it's bolded and it draws my attention and the comments at the end. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you, Everybody does that too. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I'm more of uh, the, the norm here. So uh, I know you pay attention to the comments, but how much do they mean to you? That's a good question. I don't even know what to make of the comments. Right. Um, but what, what I will say on the positive side about comments is it, it proved to me how smart our readers are because Sometimes in the back of my mind, I know I should bring some aspect in and it just doesn't get into the article. And I'm always amazed that within two hours, some reader will sense that lack and put it in the comments. And I'm very grateful when, when, uh, when a reader does that. I find our comments are, most of them are not online trolley kind of stuff. But, uh, but it is interesting that everybody says they read the comments first. And these uh, people kind of know people speak their mind in the comments, right? And I think that goes along with journalism. That, uh, right. Yeah. We don't have, uh, yeah, we don't have shrinking violets in this industry. And, uh, and oftentimes it's just a matter of those shrinking violets will come out in terms of the comments because everyone... I know I disagree with a lot of the comments that uh, not yours, but uh, but, you know, the people that you're interviewing for these articles and I've got different points of view. And uh, the question is, do I share those in comments or just I let them pass and move on to the next <laughs> thing in my day? Right. Right. Um, but I, but I've always appreciated because I've seen you comment on the comments <laughs> in your articles, especially when somebody's way off base. So uh, that shows me you take a lot of pride in what you're reporting, what you, you know, your, your staff is doing. Yeah, thank you. No, I do, and I do, and I do that 
both because sometimes I'll see something that was way off base and I feel like I owe it to my sources who I've convinced to stick their necks out to balance something that's clearly off balance. And also because I do want to encourage comments. And if I don't participate, then what import am I placing on them? Yeah. And Brooke, you mentioned not your focus is not to get the big scoop on the latest breaking news and report it, but uh, spend more time. But in this era of of misinformation and fake news, how do you guys at RAI Biz separate fact from fiction? Again, it kind of goes back to sticking to journalistic fundamentals, right? And we are right off the bat radically conflicted as journalists as much as anybody else is, right? Because we depend on advertising dollars and typically the types of people that advertise are perhaps the most likely to get criticized (laughs) is they're big companies, right? And that's what, and you sort of have to be the bad news about the big powerful companies in this industry. So the temptation to be fake is there. Um, I do think, you know, the term fake news pretty much applies to political news. Um, You generally don't hear it as much referred to about business news, right? Now that said, the, I don't know if there's an industry on the planet that knows how to spin things and uh, put a sugary complexion on things as Wall Street. And there's a lot of, you know, sort of attitude from some of the PR representatives of the uh, companies in this industry that uh, journalists will sort of toe the line in a certain uh, certain way. And the fact that it's a small industry, you have advertisers, you have PR people, you get to know some of them become your friends. There's all kinds of ways that you can get fake in a hurry. And, um, you know, a lot of that is, again, having faith in the process, faith in the reader, and and kind of sticking to it. But the other thing is, the complexity is enormous just having uh, journalism and advertising, right? But if you've noticed, a lot of the publications that we compete against have added a whole bouquet of, you know, ways that they interact with the reader, including sponsored content, and they throw conferences and everything else. So I think that adds a whole new dimension of conflict and potential for being a little fake. And so far, we've decided to stay away from conferences and sponsored content and other kind of areas where truth gets shaded, where where the the boundaries get porous. And I think that's kept us away from fake news. Well, I can't speak for everybody, but there's I think there's a deeper appreciation for the facts than somebody uh, a publication that's out. Uh, trying to get to to the forefront as quickly as possible and maybe compromising some of those facts. And so uh, I'd rather wait for the, wait for the good stuff than, than uh, immediately tune into something that may not be true. And I, I, I think that transcends every industry, not just ours, right? Um, I agree, I agree. Uh, but I think I, I actually give 
our industry may be particular credit for that. Um, I think we are a thinking industry and uh, I, I, I find we are exponentially rewarded for every extra source we bring in and so on. Yeah. And it's tiring to introduce more sources because then you, oh. every time you get a new source, you have to rewrite the whole article <laughs> because the whole yeah. balance gets thrown <laughs> off. So. And I get your point about the PR. I mean, I've, I've been with organizations that have hired PR firms to run interference, to reposition quotes. To, and But I also understand those firms' point of view because the, uh, the downside of getting something wrong or saying something wrong or articulating it the wrong way are exponential, the, the problems it can create. So uh, I get why the bigger firms have, have had to run interference with PR firms. I, no, I get it too. And uh, I I remember at the publication I was at before RA Biz in the meetings, uh, PR people always got referred to as flax. And that always bothered me. Uh, I, I always knew, you know, known all PR people to basically be good people trying to do their job the best they can. But they are working within a culture that sometimes is challenging for them, I think. Yeah, my best strategy was trying to hide from uh, certain reporters at events. But yeah. Tough to do at six ten. Yeah, right. Uh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I always appreciated that you were tall. I could find you. Yes. Yeah. So let's zoom out again. Uh, I want to ask you a question. Top three most influential people in the industry, in the financial services industry, right now, in your opinion. I'd love. I'd love to be creative about this and like give you some halfway known, you know, lesser known characters or something. But but uh, this is, at least in the past year, the big players have almost been more aggressive than the smaller upstarts. So there's been a lot of innovation at the top and they have a lot of influence. So I'd say uh, um, it would be hard not to uh, put Chuck Schwab maybe, you know, up near the top it's maybe unfair to Walt Bettinger, who has been obviously right there, but um, it was Chuck's decision to go to zero. I mean, I've seen some of his recent videos and he'll say, I decided to go to zero. He's right. the first person, right? And I just think we cannot over overstate the importance of that. And I think it was an antecedent to the merger with TD, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, he would certainly, I think, be on the list. Abby Johnson's not messing around. She keeps trying. Uh, she's kept that company at number one in 401k, which I just think is unbelievable. Um, the uh, She's taking risks by moving the form firm forward with things like cryptocurrency and, um, you know, establishing fidelity now as really the only big, choice right to uh to schwab on the custody front so and then uh and then you'd sort of come down between uh maybe an eric clark or a bill crager um i think they they're somewhere they exist somewhere in between uh uh the custodians and the advisors and uh are kind of creating another industry in between some sort of a mezzanine layer and they're both good people they've been around forever and uh, keep keep uh, keep keep trying new things right so so i would I, I would i would go i would go with those uh characters well you stated in the beginning that uh 
at beginning to this answer was uh, that they're they're not small, you know, startup companies. These are all major companies. Obviously, Orion has become bigger. Investnet certainly become bigger, but Fidelity and Schwab. Yet their propensity to stay on that cutting edge, bleeding edge of innovation has been remarkable. And I, I couldn't agree more. I'm trying to disagree with you on some things here, Brooke, but it's not working. Okay. Uh, <laughs> let's try the, the last topic. I said I would come back to this. What's the aftermath of Schwab and TD coming together? Well, I think there's already been a lot in terms of, uh, I, I mean, when I talk to other custodians, I mean, we'll talk about it in the custodian uh, realm initially, but it they are all excited as can be about it because it has created such clear differentiation and they're able, they've always been not able to compete obviously on size, et cetera. So they compete on sort of a nimble service ability and some sort of differentiation a sort of a, a flavor of vanilla, but nonetheless a flavor and I, they, they all seem to be saying they're going to get their fair share of advisors that just kind of spin out of this thing. That said, uh, I think that the Schwab, Schwab TD is going to be, a, you know, it's going to be something we've never seen as sort of a super alpha in this business. And I know, you know, from being an environmentalist, you talk about introducing wolves to an ecosystem that doesn't have them and the, and the whole environment improves, right? So that's going to happen because there's going to there's gonna be things they can do with their size and there are going to be things they can't do because of their size. But it just creates a different kind of player. And I think that accrues to the benefit, you know, of a wide of a, of a wide range of people, including advisors and consumers, right? Well, it's, uh, I think a lot of time when, when, when uh, mergers or acquisitions such as these go down, emotions get high, advisors want to take a lot of phone calls, listen to a lot of people, but at the end of the day, it comes down to blocking and tackling. And Schwab has always done very well at that. Schwab and TD, you can blocking, tackling, and add technology into it. It's a good combination. The question mm -hmm. is, can they can they maintain a community? Can they maintain that uh, partnership with level with their advisors uh, at this size? And that's the right. opportunity other firms will, I think, try to capitalize on. I agree, and I, and I, but I, I just think there's it's a sort of the same with consumers. Like some consumers want to deal with a large national brand, and others don't, right? And they'll so I just I think it creates differentiation. And uh, I'm going to assume for now that that's a positive thing is the X factor of no, no more TD, right? So what was TD's destiny? And we will never find out. We, we, you know, they, uh, was it such a great destiny that, that we're going to lose? I'm optimistic right now that the combination will succeed. Well, I'll look forward to seeing this play out through RIA Biz and in your articles and, and your and your notes and like I said, my favorite comments at the end of these articles. So we'll see how that goes. And uh Brooke, I'll tell I Peter thank Giesen. You. What's that? I'll tell Peter Giesen. <laughs> He's my best commenter, I think. Okay. 
I will uh, I thank you again for being uh, a guest on my inaugural podcast here. This was great. Um, I hope our listeners got quite a bit out of this and, uh, and uh, look forward to our next podcast with Liz Nesvold from Raymond James, who will be talking mergers and acquisitions of uh, one of the topics I mentioned earlier with, with Brooke is one of the key industry uh, trends right now. So thank you again, Brooke. Have a great day, everyone. And thanks for tuning in. All right. Thank you, Derek. Thank you for good questions. Thank you. Bye-bye.